Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We have someone extremely exciting for you today, someone I'm very excited about, someone that's been important in my life, and I'm so excited to share with you this person so we've got with us today Nicholas Wachmann, who is a professor of modern European history at Birkbeck University of London. He's also an award-winning author. He's won three prizes, three prizes, people, for his book, KL, A History of the Nazi Concentration Camps. And he's here because I would not let it go for him to come and join us on this podcast. I've been badgering him for months and months and months. I think I've kind of broken him down enough to come on our podcast and talk to us about how the concentration camps began. So hi, Nick. Hi, Alina. Um, thanks for the fulsome introduction. I don't think I can live up to all of that, but I'll, 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 I'll try. I'll try my best. Do you know what? I'm, I'm so interested. We've been, we've been dying to do something about the beginning because we've talked about the Holocaust. We've talked about other aspects of this, but we, we haven't spoken about the beginning. There's nothing in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of, I mean, you know, when I first came to this topic, the searching the history of the concentration camp. This is. Crikey, uh, 20 years now, um, I think, also. Um, that was my starting point, too, that I thought, you know, there's a lot of literature on the camps during the war and the relationship of the camps um, to policies of mass extermination during the Second World War, the Holocaust. Um, but there seemed to be less clarity, at least for me, coming at that point from the outside about where this whole system came from. And then what the links were between camps in the pre-war period in Nazi Germany to the wartime um, destruction, violence and genocide. So when people talk about concentration camps now, and I get this all the time, it's always Auschwitz, Auschwitz, Auschwitz. But um, Auschwitz is not the first concentration camp. Some, there was a concentration camp open seven years before this. But before we get to that camp, because we need, we need to set a scene to allow people to understand where we come, why they actually began. So can you give us a very brief overview of the situation in Germany up until the 30th of January 1933? Okay, um, so the Third Reich, so-called Third Reich, Nazi Germany, which takes uh, shape following Hitler's appointment in January 1933 as German Chancellor. The Third Reich is preceded by the so-called Weimar Republic. That is the first experiment in democracy, uh, in parliamentary democracy in Germany following the defeat of Germany in the First World War. Um, so this uh, republic rises out of the ashes of um, the German defeat in the First World War. Um, and Germany 
um, introduces or, or creates, establishes this um, democratic regime um, with various social reforms linked to it as well and a sense of, amongst the supporters of the Republic, of moving Germany into a modern um, liberal uh, period. Uh, however, um, there is lots of resistance and opposition to this right from the beginning. So um, though there are many supporters, there are also many diehard enemies of um, democracy, of parliamentarism, right from the beginning, so a crisis of legitimacy in the political field, um, which is, you know, which you can see reflected not least in, in, in high-profile political assassinations early on, also in coup attempts against the Republic. The Weimar system then enters, Republic enters a period of relative stability in the mid-1920s, um, but then things really come crushing down um, in the late 20s, early 30s. The background here is the um, depression, which leads to huge mass unemployment in Germany, um, which creates a dramatic economic crisis. Um, and that in turn precipitates a crisis of the entire state. So the state institutions start in many ways to disintegrate. Um, there are f hardly any um, supporters, only a, a hardcore of supporters of the Republic really left um, by the early, uh, by early 1933. The, the largest of those is the Social Democratic Party of Germany. But um, by 1932-33, the signs are quite clear. Germany is, is moving away from democracy in some way. What is less clear is what, what might follow if the Republic finally falls. Um, and the answer is given in 1933 with the appointment of Hitler as German Chancellor. Hitler is the um, leader of, by then, the by far largest German political party, the National Socialists. And they'd come electorally from almost nothing, uh, from almost nowhere. Um, in the... Uh, Reichstag election, that is the national elections in 1928, that is before the Great Depression, the Nazi party gains less than 3% in the national elections. Um, by summer um, 1932, the Nazi party gets something like 37%. Um, so they are um, making them by far the largest party in the German parliament. They are dedicated enemies of parliamentarianism. They explicitly take part in elections in order to gain power to destroy democracy. And this is what they then do with a vengeance um, in the weeks and months after Hitler's appointment as chancellor. So Hitler becomes chancellor. When does the idea to create concentration camps come about? I mean, why are they even need at mm. this point? Well, the the Nazis themselves um, never tire of claiming in propaganda that um, the concentration camps were invented elsewhere. Uh, in other words, there isn't anything kind of unusual about these camps which spring up, and we'll say more about um, what that means soon. Um, but, you know, I mean, 
there's a there's a kernel of truth in that, in the sense that um, the principle of holding large numbers of political or other suspects in camps um, outside the law um, had emerged in the decades before Hitler comes to power. Um, so we see this in, in colonial wars in the late 19th century, early 20th century. We see this also during the First World War. So this the term concentration camp had been around before, but the concentration camp as the Nazis build them is made in Germany, if you will. Um, it is the Nazis who invent their particular type of concentration camp. And the reason they do this is that they are convinced that in order to create this new Germany, which they want to build and which they have promised their voters, their supporters they will build, they need to destroy all those who they claim are standing outside the, in inverted commas, national community, as the Nazis call it. Um, these are social outsiders, um, so-called criminals and asocials. These are so-called racial outsiders, um, above all German Jews, and we should come back to that later. Um, uh, and they are also political enemies. And the, the foremost focus in the early months of 1933 is on the intimidation and destruction of all those political opponents who the Nazis believe could um, resist, could undermine the new Germany which they are trying to build. And the Nazi leaders at the top and Nazi activists on the ground are determined to use whatever means um, uh, that are in their grasp, um, going well beyond the law to ensure that this um, is going to be implemented and realised. Before we move on to the next question, I just have to add in here that I'm so grateful you said that it was this specific system was created by the Germans because how many times people throw at you that, oh, it was the British or it was the Spanish or some other... Oh, do you, I mean, do you, do you know who kind of one of the people is who, who, who always propagated this and said that? I mean, Hitler himself. So, you know, I mean, this is this is not a man you want to find yourself in agreement with, I think. I like that. Can I use that for future reference now? Oh, go for it. Copyrighted, Alina. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So let's move on to what these conditions are, because when people again, I'm going to use this 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 example very many times because it's something that most people know more about, for example, Auschwitz. So were the conditions in these first camps, were they like Auschwitz? Were people dying in mass? I think, I mean, maybe maybe let's take a brief step back first, because let me maybe say something about about these early camps and 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 what they what they look like and where we can find them. Because I think we we all have these ideas, these images, these pictures of, of what the camps look like. And very often these images are shaped by um, photos um, we've seen taken after liberation, so 1945, or maybe um, movies we've seen or documentaries we've seen about the Holocaust. 
And I think it's important to stress that these early camps that spring up all over Germany, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of these early sites of torture, of abuse, of detention, of forced labor. Um, these look, for the overwhelming part, very, very, very different to later SS-coordinated concentration camps. Um, there isn't a blueprint or master plan for the regime um, when they come to power, when the Nazis come to power for the creation of these concentration camps. And that leads to a large amount of improvisation and indeed chaos and confusion as well as local regional SA, SS, police um, and other authorities set up their own camps effectively. And they grab whatever spaces they can find for this. So it's not as if there is a, a blueprint for building a camp. It is existing buildings and structures which are converted, are reused and turned into concentration camps. And, you know, that, that, that can be a, a disused hotel. It can be a pub. It can be an, an old sports ground. It can be um, an old castle. It can be, as in the case of Dachau, the first SS concentration camp, a disused munitions factory. It can even be, as in the case of a um, camp in near Bremen in northern Germany, it can even be uh, an old boat. Um, so the, 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 the Nazi activists and authorities grab whatever spaces they can to set up these um, early camps all over Germany and conditions then are extremely variable and that's maybe the most important thing to stress here is that there isn't a typical Nazi camp. Um, these camps vary very dramatically in terms of the conditions, in terms of their design, in terms of who is guarding them early on and that has uh, immediate an immediate impact on the living conditions for the prisoners. In those camps run by the paramilitaries, that is the, the parliamentary arm of the Nazi movement, the SA, which is by far the largest of these paramilitary uh, units, organizations in 1933, um, and the SS, which is much smaller, in those camps, um, the conditions are extremely bad. Um, there is extraordinary violence, verbal abuse, physical abuse, torture, um, sexual abuse. Uh, I mean, the, the, these, there are scenes all over these camps of, of extraordinary, uh, violence being played out. Um, the situation might be or was different in some other early camps, um, which were not yet run by the SA or by the SS, i.e. by the paramilitaries. And you can see that difference in Dachau itself. So Dachau is set up, as I said, the, the first SS um, concentration camp in March 1933. The first prisoners arrive, I think, on the 22nd of March. And uh, the man who gives the order to set up this camp in Dachau is the SS leader, Heinrich Himmler, 
who at that point also uh, is in charge of the political police in Munich, uh, the capital of Bavaria. But the first guards are ordinary policemen, and they treat the first prisoners who arrive. These are maybe a hundred or so um, local regional communist men. They treat them fairly well. They give them the same food they're eating. There is no violence um, to speak of early on. And we have a letter of one of the earliest prisoners, um, a, a German a Jew who writes um, that, you know, he's, 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 he's only waiting for the time when they're going to go home again. And this man is one of the first of, I think, 40,000 or so victims then of the SS in Dachau, because it is the SS who um, within weeks takes over control of Dachau from the police. Um, so in answer to your question, uh, the conditions vary greatly. Um, and in SS and SA run, i.e. these paramilitary camps, conditions are atrocious. There are scores of deaths. Um, but, and that we must also underline, um, most prisoners in the early camps are still far more likely to be released again than to die inside. So these are not yet, these are not yet sites of mass extermination, these camps, as they then become during the Second World War. So the function of the concentration camp changes. I mean, it doesn't change just once, but it changes a couple of times, doesn't it? We're talking about before the Second World War. Yeah, I mean, that's that's true. I mean, what I that's absolutely true. What I would say is that the the camps always have multiple purposes, really. Um, so even early on in 1933, which is the period we've we've started talking about here, I mean, the, the primary focus, as I said, of the primary function of the camps at this point is to um, destroy or help to destroy the political opposition, any chance of political resistance against the regime. So the vast majority of prisoners early on are German communists, German socialists, trade unionists, um, and so on. Um, but even in this period, there are already other prisoner groups who are dragged to the camps. There are already social outsiders. There are already German Jews who are singled out for particularly vicious violence right from the beginning. So already in 33, we have different groups in the camps. I'll come back to that. And the camps themselves also have different functions more broadly. So I said the aim is, above all else, to destroy the political opposition. That means tormenting prisoners inside, but it also means, for example, intimidating um, any potential resistors or any sympathizers with the political left um, and with democracy outside. So maybe we can come back to that later, but the camps are certainly not secret in 1933, nor are they after. I mean, this is one of these myths that camps kind of were invisible in some way. Um, the camps are also used from early on for um, forced labor. So that is, is, is a function too. Initially, forced labor focuses above all on prisoners maintaining the camp, building the camp indeed, often. Um, later in the 1930s, the SS then 
having coordinated the camp system, so the camps come into the hands of the SS. All these other authorities are no longer involved in running the camps. And the SS, by the late 30s, also pushes slave labor um, in, in, in other directions, trying to use prisoners, for example, to um, quarry stone. Um, but again, we might come back to that. You asked about the, the other changes in function. And I've already said that already in 1933, some other prisoner groups are dragged to the camps. And that becomes ever more pronounced um, in the mid and late 1930s. So once the political resistance or opposition is largely broken, um, more and more other prisoner groups are dragged to the camps. These are some other political prisoners, um, including those persecuted for their religion, like Jehovah's Witnesses. These are so-called social outsiders, um, homosexuals, for example, and these so-called asocials and criminals um, who make up the, the, the largest prisoner group, the largest single prisoner group by the time the war breaks out. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. One of these prisoners is a man called um, Wilhelm Müller. Um, he's divorced, unemployed, a pauper. Um, you know, has barely any, any, any money to, to live on. He's forced by the welfare authorities to perform some kind of menial labor for which he gets, um, a tiny bit of money, but that's barely enough to, to survive. So he sometimes begs on the streets of, of Duisburg and the Ruhr area in Germany. And one day in the summer of 1938, in June 38, a police officer calls him begging. And that is all it takes for Müller to be dragged as an, a social human being, as the authorities put it, um, uh, being dragged as a workshop beggar um, to uh, Sachsenhausen concentration camp, uh, one of the new SS concentration camps um, Sachsenhausen set up outside Berlin in 1936. And Müller is one of nearly 10,000 so-called a social men who are arrested during mass raids in June 38 and dragged to camps. Hundreds of them die. Um, Müller is amongst the lucky ones who are released again in spring 39, uh, just uh, months before war breaks out. So in terms of function, we have this growing focus of the police authorities who are in charge of the arrests on social outsiders, so-called asocials and criminals, and also then in the later 1930s, um, uh, even more than before on German and Austrian Jews, um, Austria being incorporated into Germany in 1938. Um, and that culminates the, the, the persecution or the use of concentration camps as weapons of terror against Jews culminates in the days after the November 1938 program when um, 25,000 or more um, Jewish men are dragged to uh, Dachau, to Sachsenhausen, to Buchenwald, um, the three biggest SS camps at that point, and are exposed to extreme deprivation and violence. Hundreds of these um, Jewish prisoners die. 
Um, others are released again in the following weeks and months um, if they undertake to emigrate from Germany. Um, so, and I mean, I can, I can, I can, I can talk more about. That. I mean, some of these, some of these Jewish prisoners um, are held for for years, as are um, some communist prisoners. Um, one of these um, Jewish prisoners is a really um, uh, uh, um, interesting, a young, brilliant lawyer called Hans Litten. And he's on Hitler's radar ever since uh, Litten took Hitler on in court, um, doing a court appearance in Berlin in 1931. And Litten is amongst the first um, German uh, men to be arrested after Hitler comes to power in the hours after the Reichstagsfire in February 1928. And Litten goes through a number of different camps. Um, he's abused, beaten, tormented. Um, his uh, leg gets run over during slave labor. He tries to kill himself already in 1933 by trying to cut his wrists. Um, he faces um, daily humiliation and violence um, and uh, is then found uh, hanged in the latrine in Dachau in February 1938 after years of suffering. Um, uh, and that's another example for these different functions the camps um, took on in the years before the war. So it is political terror, but it is also racial terror and terror against those on the margins of society. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm going to throw in a question. I, I, know, I know the answer to this question, but I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of our listeners may be asking this question. It's regarding some of the criminals, Basically, you said that general criminals were, were, were put into concentration camps. But what about murderers? Where do they fall into this? Um, the, I mean, I think it's, in, I said so cool, I, I hope I said so called criminals, because quite often, um, though the Nazi propaganda makes a lot of the um, Nazi uh, supposed eradication of criminality, which is another myth, another fiction. Um, the those who are actually dragged to camps as criminals are not the 
dangerous, violent for the for the overwhelming part, not the dangerous, violent criminals of the popular imagination and of Nazi propaganda, but small time petty property offenders. Uh, it's important, I think, to 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 stress that um, the German legal system with courts, with prisons, never disappears in Germany. And in the pre-war years, many, many more uh, men and women are held in German regular prisons and penitentiaries than in concentration camps. The daily number of inmates in German prisons and penitentiaries by the mid-late 30s um, exceeds 100,000, um, whereas the number of concentration camp prisoners when war breaks out in September 1939 is a little bit more than 20,000. So the legal system is continuing in Nazi Germany. It is Nazified um, with jurists falling in line with the new regime. Many of them need no persuading to do so. Um, they, they are broadly sympathetic to many of the things the Nazi regime promises and does. And that means that most of those individuals sentenced for um, particular violent, particularly violent crimes like murder would end up in German penal institutions, in German penitentiaries. Those um, men who are dragged as criminals to concentration camps in the pre-war years, um, thousands of them who have to wear a green triangle on their uniform, the SS, after it coordinates the concentration camp system, eventually introduces a color-coded system of, 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 of triangles which prisoners have to wear on their uniform, so-called criminals wear the green triangle, and, and the, the, the great majority of them are, as I said, petty property offenders, um, men who have many, many convictions for small-time thefts, um, like bicycle theft or um, um, food theft, um, or, you know, I've come across cases where... Um, People end up in concentration camps for stealing, you know, a few chicken. Um, in the eyes of the authorities, these um, men are inflated into dangerous habitual criminals. Um, they are seen as a social threat because of their persistent criminality, also because they are suspected of being work shy in inverted commas, and not pulling their weight. They're also seen um, by some as, in inverted commas, racial threats, threats to what the Nazi's authority, Nazi authorities would call the health of the nation because they are seen as, in inverted commas, degenerate in some way. Um, and sometimes they're also seen as political threats. Um, there are uh, long-standing myths that there might be some um, collaboration between the criminal underworld and communists, for example. So this is the this is what drives this um, assault on social outsiders. But it's really important to stress that the overwhelming 
majority of these so-called asocials or criminals are not dangerous, violent offenders. You've mentioned previously about being released. So that there was a chance of being released, but when these people were released back into society, could they talk about what they saw in the concentration camps? Was there some sort of silence that they had to abide to? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really interesting question. Um, the the vast majority of those who are arrested early on um, in the in the early months of the Nazi regime. And we're talking in 1933 about well over hundreds of thousands of um, arrests in Germany. The overwhelming majority um, of these men and smaller number of women are released again, um, sometimes after weeks, sometimes after months, um, released back into um, German society, sometimes um, they have to undertake to, to emigrate, they have to sign um, papers to do so. This is the case, I've seen this in some cases of German Jews, for example. This is all part of the broader emerging Nazi aim to, to, to drive Jews out of Germany, to make life for German Jews impossible inside Germany. Um, but many others stay inside Germany. They often have to undertake that they do not talk about what happened inside. This is sometimes a written form, a written document. There are threats, very, very graphic threats, um, which uh, commanders of these camps utter um, before release, saying, you know, if you if you speak about what you saw here, um, you know, you'll come back and you'll never be released, or we might even arrest your whole family. Um, so there are there are intense there's intense pressure put on these uh, prisoners not to talk about what happened because the regime is somewhat sensitive about um, the truth of abuse and violence and terror inside spreading beyond into German society, but. All of these whispers and all of these all of these all of these rumors are impossible to suppress in 1933-34. Um, some released prisoners do talk to their families, to their um, political comrades. Um, some don't have to say anything because it is visible um, just by looking at them, by seeing their broken noses, um, their broken limbs. Um, swollen eyes and so on, that they were brutally abused inside. So before long, uh, much of Germany is awash with rumours, with um, talk of what happens inside these new camps, these new concentration camps. And that's reflected even in, in jokes. There's a, a popular German joke about Dachau in the 1930s, where um, two men meet on the street and one of them says, oh, uh, good to see you again. How, how was it in the camp? And the released man says, oh, it was great. We had a breakfast in bed, um, chocolate. Um, we played games. We snoozed. We watched a film. Um, it was great. And the other man is astonished and says, that's, 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 a, that's amazing. Um, 
Uh, I just spoke to uh, our friend, um, you know, another friend of ours who was released again, and he told me a very different story. And the other men, uh, the other man nods and says, well, that's why they've picked him up again. Um, so you took the words flay- out of my mouth there, I've got to say, because I was about to, to throw <laughs> that in and say, can you tell us the joke? There is that. There it is. Um the um, you know and that's not that's not the only one. I mean there are also there are under um, there are undercover reports which circulate. I mean you know an extraordinary story um, um, is that of a, a very prominent German communist called Hans Beimler. Um, he was a deputy for the communists in the German parliament in 1932. He goes underground after the Nazis come to power, but he's caught very quickly in spring 33 and dragged to Dachau concentration camp. And the SS, um, which had by then taken over the camp, treat him and parade him around as a kind of trophy prisoner. Um, he's beaten, he's humiliated, he has to wear a sign saying welcome around his neck, and he's dragged off straight away to solitary confinement. And the man, the assessment dragging him away, beats him so hard with a whip that prisoners who stand very far away can count. Um, every every single blow. Um, the SS over the coming weeks abuse him, torture him, torment him, and basically try to drive him to suicide. They even bring him a rope into his cell. But Beimler, Hans Beimler, is the first prisoner to escape from Dachau in May 33 in a daring escape. There's a huge manhunt that follows, but Beimler manages to, to get away, and he makes it all the way to Moscow. And one of the first things he does there is um, uh, complete and publish a eyewitness account of his torment in Dachau. And that is published. It is also smuggled back into Germany. And that's another way in which these rumors circulate through Germany in 1933. So how many concentration camps were there by 1939? Okay, um, so in, in like I said, in 1933, when this, when this system emerges, first of all, we've got hundreds and hundreds of these camps. Um, that's another reason why the camp system um, is never uh, locked away, is always to some extent visible to the German public, because in, in a number of cities, um, there are dozens, if not more, of these camps. So in, in, in Berlin, um, there are over 170 of these early camps in 1933, um, which means in some districts, there's almost literally kind of a camp on, a, in any, on every other street corner. And you can sometimes see people being dragged to these camps, or you can hear their screams as they're being tortured inside. This is very visible and a very dense net, if you will, in 1933. What happens um, then is that this system is coordinated in the hands of the SS and um, drastically um, changed in that the SS starts to run a much smaller number of large camps under its control. And these are, by 1939, all purpose-built camps. Um, I said before that in 1933, these early camps are um, often set up in, in found locations, if you will, um, from hotels to, to boats. By 1939, 
um, we have only camps run by the SS and only camps which are purpose-built in more secluded locations um, for the most part, um, expandable often and uh, built according to a quite similar um, architectural plan for the most part. And these are these long rows of wooden barracks, which um, some of your listeners might be familiar with. And by 1939, by the time war breaks out, there are six of these camps. As I say, all of them purpose-built. Um, and five of these camps are cam camps for men. Um, these will be the three large camps I mentioned before, Dachau, Buchenwald, um, and Sachsenhausen. And then two new ones established in 1938 near quarries, um, the quarry camps in, in Mauthausen and Flossenburg. And then we also have in 1939 the sixth camp, that is the first purpose-built SS camp for women um, in Ravensbrück, a few dozen uh, miles north of Berlin. So this is the first camp for female prisoners in the first SS-run concentration camp, purpose-built um, for female prisoners. And then this basic architectural type of camp is then taken by Hearst and turned into Auschwitz. Well, to a point, up to a point, yes. Um, I mean, you, you, you certainly see, for example, some of these rows of barracks, uh, you know, in, 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 in Auschwitz in the main camp. Um, you also see it in Birkenau, in Birkenau on a, on a, on a, on a different scale. Um, Uh, but Auschwitz, the main camp set up by Hess, Hess was the, the um, first commandant of Auschwitz, as you say, and he had gone through what the SS calls the, or sometimes calls the school of violence in Dachau. So he starts his SS career in Dachau in 1934, um, quickly rises from sentry to a more powerful position inside the camp and is then as a younger, ambitious SS officer appointed to this post and the new camp in, in, in Auschwitz. Now, Auschwitz, uh, one, the main camp is, um, at least in 1940, um, also found in a way. I mean, this is another old barracks compound and the SS converts it. Um, so structurally, architecturally, um, you know, is different in some ways to Dachau or Sachsenhausen where, where has had been before. But Hess, of course, brings with him many of the things he had learned about the SS terror, about establishing a camp, about how to run a camp, about how prisoners, prisoners would be treated, about the order of the camps, the bureaucracy. I mean, we, 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 we tend to think uh, of camps only as sites of um, arbitrary violence and extreme um, physical abuse. And, The camps were that, but the camps were also increasingly large bureaucratic machines with paperwork, with offices, with departments, um, and so on. And this kind of model that the SS develops before the war, above all in a place like, um, like Dachau, this model is then in some ways the blueprint for camps set up um, elsewhere in occupied Europe during the Second World War, places like Auschwitz. 
Amazing, Nick. That was so insightful. And I'm so glad that I managed to wear you down to come and join us on this podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we finish? Well, I think the, I mean, I think we left it in a, in a, in a, in an interesting place there because it's important, I think, to, to, to stress that there are these differences between the pre-war camps and the wartime camps. Um, one other point to underline, I mean, you know, I've already spoken about the, the huge, um, explosion of, um, deadly violence in the camps during the war. So just to, repeat before the war prisoners are more likely to be released than to die inside and the, the very much the opposite is true during the second world war but the prisoner population changes as well um, um, before the war the vast majority of inmates are german speakers overwhelmingly germans and then from 38 also austrians um, whereas by the end of the war german prisoners are in a very very small minority inside and we also have other profound changes um the number the proportion of jews inside camps um uh, grows um dramatically uh, especially from 1942 when the camps the concentration camps start to play a significant role in the nazi extermination of um european jewry and we also see during the war a, a, a significant increase in the proportion of female prisoners. So before the war, I've mentioned Ravensbrück, um, but there are, you know, there are over, overall the, the proportion of female prisoners before the war is relatively small. Um, and that grows dramatically in the later stages of the Second World War. So there are all these profound changes or differences between the pre-war camps and the wartime concentration camps. But, and that's what I wanted to underline, there are also these continuities. Uh, and these continuities are personified in a man like Rudolf Hess, who oversees the Holocaust in Auschwitz. He oversees the transformation of Auschwitz from a camp to destroy the Polish political opposition to a Holocaust death camp. Um, but this is a man who's not uh, somehow entering um, as, as terror in 1940 when Auschwitz is set up. He, like the concentration camp system, has a much longer history that goes back to the early period of Nazi rule. And we cannot understand the concentration camp system, the terror and violence during the war, if we do not understand how this system was born and evolved in the years before the war. I, that's so insightful. I'm so glad we've managed to plug this gap in our podcasting because, like I said earlier at the beginning of the conversation, we've had stuff about the Holocaust and concentration camps, but nothing where we start from the beginning. And before we finish, ladies and gentlemen, please make sure you do go to Nick's website, uh, which has some amazingly great information and it also has some videos that you can look at especially things like um, that secret taping of Perry Broad, which is really interesting. So it's for anybody who's listening, it's www.camps.bbk.ac.uk. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Alina. Thanks for having me. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack 
and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Elena and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.